When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What's up, everybody? It's Soren Baker. And today on Unique Access with Soren Baker, I had the honor and the privilege of speaking with James Prince. Now, you might know him as Jay Prince or Little Jay. But James Prince is a phenomenal businessman. He had rap a lot records and still does. Put out a lot of great material from Scarface, The Ghetto Boys, Devin the Dude, and dozens of other artists. And he also has an amazing book. So the focus of this interview is on his book, Respect, which I highly recommend that you pick up and read if you haven't already. And in this interview, we talk a lot about his life, his business, and his perspective as a businessman and as somebody that grew and developed into one of the most powerful, important, and influential figures in the rap business and really in rap history. So check out my interview, Unique Access with Soren Baker with Jay Prince, AKA James Prince. What's up everybody, it's Soren Baker here on Unique Access and today we are joined by one of the icons and legends in the rap business, James Prince. Oh uh, yeah. Thank you for coming through, sir. Oh man, a pleasure to be here, man. Yes, thank you, thank you. So obviously you have your new book, The Art and Science of Respect. It's an yeah. amazing read and anyone that wants to know about rap, but also about personal growth and development and information on how to survive in, the, in life really. And whatever game you happen to be playing in life, I would highly recommend it. And the book has two sections. <clears throat> the first is about your life and coming up before rap a lot and then a lot of the second half of the book focuses on what was going on musically and then with boxing and different things. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was one of the stories that you told was about your typing class. Yeah. And I wanted you to, you know, that was a situation that made you feel uncomfortable, but then yeah. you also grew and learned a lot from that. Yeah. So how were you able to be in a situation that made you uncomfortable, but then realize that this is something that could lead you to have, you know, this growth and, and to not dismiss the opportunity. Right. Well, it ended up happening to me after the fact. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize. You know, in the, in the midst of being in a typing class, it was like a bigger picture mm. behind me being there. You know, at the time, you know, I was like, you know, I didn't sign up for typing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why y'all gonna put me in a typing class? It's for girls. You know, so I tried to, you know, that's the way my mind was working. Okay. You know what I mean? I tried to get out of the class and and they wouldn't let me get out of the class. On top of being in the class, you know, I had a, a teacher that was gay. 
you know, and at that time I like really had an issue with that as well, you know, so I'm like, not only do I want not want to be in typing, y'all gonna put me in here with this kind of situation. Mm -hmm. So I sit there for like two weeks or so and not, I wouldn't cooperate, you know, I wouldn't do anything. And what ended up happening was the power of me passing was greater than that I was feeling about the class and the teacher. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Me being a failure, just, it was a strong thing within me that I wasn't gonna be no failure no matter what circumstance I was right. under. So therefore I became the the second or third fastest typer in the room. Mm. You know what I mean? I learned how to <laughs> I learned how to put my fingers together and I became great at that, which uh eventually led me to other places. You know what I mean? I ended up getting like uh, a, a top it was three students that had um three jobs was offered to them. Two of the jobs was Exxon. You know, we can go in and intern with Exxon. The other one was Colonial Savings at a savings loan bank. Right. So I took that opportunity. So, you know, in retrospect, when I think about, you know, all of uh, the things that, you know, was taking place that I thought was, uh, wasn't a good thing for me, or I thought didn't fit, you know, uh, the journey that I want to be a part of, uh, <laughs> it end up like complimenting, you know, uh, really the rest of my life. Okay. You know, be real. Yeah. Things and that, I learned in that class complimented every area that I moved forward on up until this point. And then I think tied into that and also throughout the book, one of the themes that may not be overt, but is definitely discussed is like patience. Yeah. And two of the things that people that haven't read the book, but they should read the book to really learn and understand this was dealing with Seven Aurelius yeah. um, and kind of waiting as his career progressed with the Murder Inc. dudes before yeah. you approach Murder Inc. Right. And then also similarly with, with the Drake situation. Yeah. So what, what was it about your life and how you had grown as a person and as a businessman up to that point that gave you that patience to where when Seven was doing this stuff with Ja Rule and you talking a lot of detail, you were going to say something, but then you realized he was about to work with Ashanti and you were like, oh, let me just wait. Right. Well, that was, uh, first of all, I believe and I've learned that there's a time and a place for everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you don't react, you know, off of every invitation that's given to you in a manner of not thinking it out properly, okay. you know, just because that invitation is given. And under the situation where uh, Murder, Inc. was, you know, I understood that if I reacted too soon, it could cost me a bunch of money. You know what I mean? I understood that, you know, everybody want, at that time wanted to be in control, other words, of their production to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Other words, if uh, I'm in a mind frame of thinking I have a producer that I own his publishing, the likelihood and the motive for me to use him on my product is gonna be, you know, kinda high. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? Vice versa, if I'm using a, a guy that's signed to someone else, then I'm like, whoa, a lot of this money gonna go this oh, way. Going elsewhere. So therefore with me understanding that, I'm like, go ahead, brother, and you know, <laughs> do as many songs as you can do. 
with these guys, you know, I want it to be done and over with. So, you know, I can come and collect on a whole lot versus a little. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what, what do you think happened in your life to make you kind of understand that um, from, you know, your growing up, because you tell so many amazing stories about like your life and how you learn certain lessons by different members of your family, both biologically and then by, you know, being a Zoom family. So how, what did you see or what did you learn that really did that for you? Well, I mean, you know, in the hood, you know, you, you learn a lot of things uh, through trial and error. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I learned so many things by observing, you know, uh, mistakes from other people. You know what I mean? I, I, I saw a whole lot and I capitalized on the things. And, you know, uh, I always believe in being a person that's quick to listen and slow to speak. So, you know, from observing and witnessing so many things in the hood equipped me uh, for corporate America when I, when I came to corporate America because a lot of these rules was in, instilled in me by that point. Okay. And then how did you, when you started making the transition into the, to the record business and you were having your different partners and working with different people, how did you, you know, apply, what were the things that you applied from the streets and you didn't apply from the streets once you were like, oh, Rap-A-Lot was going to make money? Because you went, talk about in the book how when you went to Def Jam and saw like a check for LL Cool J that Leor Cohen had, you were like, oh, this is some real money. Yeah. So then how did you navigate that, um, just flip that and apply it? Yeah, well, I always knew that I wanted to be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. And, and then I understood that in order to become a millionaire, you had to play on a millionaire's playing field. <laughs> so, you know, I realized that the music industry was a millionaire's playing field. And definitely, you know, when when Leo showed me that check, you know, it just inspired me just a little more because I'm like, okay, it's there to be gotten. And, you know, with that being understood, you know, I was able to uh, apply a lot of the principles that I learned in the street and a lot of the things I couldn't apply because, mm-hmm. you know, anybody that knows the rules and different things of the street you know, you can't come into corporate America and apply them the same way <laughs> right. and last. So, you know, I, I had to like become a student of the game and the different rules that existed, um, you know, in corporate America. I knew the rules of the street. And, you know, sometimes there was a time and a place for both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then obviously um, being more making an emphasis on listening rather than talking and getting to watch your career and your success over the years, I always thought it was interesting that if I remember correctly, you were the first rap executive I really remember hearing talking on a records that wasn't trying to be an artist. Because, yeah. you know, obviously Schooly D had Schooly D records, so he was rapping and Easy e was rapping. But when you were coming up, <clears throat> you weren't. So... What gave you the idea that it was important for you to speak on the Ghetto Boys records and to be so political and and to do that at, at, in the late 80s, early 90s? Well, you know, my uh, mission from day one was to uh, 
the reason I came up with the name the Ghetto Boys, you know, I want to be a voice for ghettos all around the world, mm -hmm. you know, and I want to speak and inspire the hoods all around the world with, you know, the the wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that that I knew of. So that was one of the <clears throat> main reasons I started speaking on on those intros because I knew it was so many people around the world that was in bondage the way I was in bondage. Mm -hmm. So some of my, ver my first conversations was to uh, try and pull them out of bondage and I painted a portrait, you know, letting them know the music game is the new dope game. You know what I mean? Right. Leave that alone. It's legal. Come over to the <laughs> new game because this, right. is, this is where it's headed. This is where it's at. And, uh, you know, I was able to uh, penetrate and capture a lot of guys attention that I didn't even know was really listening mm -hmm. but you know in retrospect when you know I listened to them today it was those seeds that I was planting that you know caused cash money master p tony draper mm -hmm. all of these guys to come to fruition and be relevant today right and then <clears throat> obviously you guys are based in Houston but then expanded out to Chicago with Do or Die and working with, uh, you know, legendary Traxter doing the beats, Do or Die being hugely successful. So, and then obviously with Resurrection, having Larry Hoover on there. So what did you realize was, and you talk about going to visit him and having him on the album and, and different things and his importance in Chicago and around the country. So for you, how did you go from not knowing much about him to learning about him to then understanding why he was so important to want to put him on a Ghetto Boys album. Yeah, well, Chicago was one of the first cities to embrace rap a lot. Hmm. And, you know, Larry Hoover knew me and knew of my movement before I really knew of him and his movement. Right. You know what I mean? And he extended an invitation, you know, for me to come in and, and visit him. And, you know, I did. You know, I went in and had opportunity, you know, to chop it up with him for a few hours, not knowing that, you know, they was putting this wristband around me mm -hmm. with uh, this this tool in it that would, you know, record me. Not right. knowing I was under surveillance and being wiretapped, you know, I wasn't in agreement with all of that. But uh, you know, it's a good thing he and I uh, was talking about legal things and legal movements. Mm -hmm. Because if not, then, you know, they, they probably would have handcuffed me before I left out of the jail, <laughs> All right. you know, because they've been looking for that kind of uh, opportunity uh, as long as I can remember. But, you know, that movement, that, that whole uh, Midwest movement was a powerful movement uh, for rap a lot. It really was the foundation of us, you know, you know building our empire mm -hmm. on, and that was forever you know, uh, be, feel a special way about the Midwest because it was Chicago, Detroit, Cleveland, you know, all of those areas that was riding with us real tough, even before Houston and a lot of the places down south. And, uh, you know, that, that led to me, like, connecting with a lot of things in the Midwest. So why do you think having been there and spent a lot of time there over the years, what was it about going to George's music room, what was it about all those situations that made Chicago, you know, so much a part of what Rap-A-Lot did? 
Yeah, they could relate to to our movement unlike no other. You know what I mean? It, you know, even though they're in the Midwest, you know, it's a connection that's really unexplainable. And I, I think if I had to explain it, I think a lot of them are from the South. A lot of Mississippi. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. from Mississippi moved so, up, especially. Yeah. So that, that has to be the connection, you know, because it's a strong connection, you know, the whole Midwest and down South. And, uh, you know, I've uh, connected with a lot of those individuals. Definitely my man, you know, Hoover, you know, who I've been speaking of uh, in the last few days, you know, uh, that's a situation where they're trying to bury him you know, Jeff Ford, a lot of those guys alive. Mm-hmm. You know, those brothers are alive, and they're trying to be buried alive. You know, have them next to, you know, the Unabomber and and this Nicholas, the Oklahoma bomber. You know, these guys have one life sentence. They gave Larry Hoover six life sentences for conspiracy. Right. So you know, you you have to put that on the scale. Don't take a rocket scientist to understand that that punishment that they given him is above and beyond the call of duty. But uh, racism is behind it, you know, yeah. And I think that clearly ties into a lot of what the Ghetto Boys were talking about, starting with the Grip It On That Other Level album, because I always will tell people that it was amazing to hear in 1989, you guys talking about how you couldn't get your songs played in New York on the radio. But then you also, you were talking about being black owned and won't sell out and all that. And that, as you mentioned earlier, inspired the Tony Drapers of the world and the Master P's and and the babies and, you know, everybody else, I'm sure, Three Six Mafia, et cetera. So what was it that you noticed uh, being a black man, owning your own record label and putting out, you know, street, street reporting, gangster rap, people call it different things, but telling those stories, what made it so important that you were doing it? Um, you know, it was important to me because I understood uh, the power behind it. You know what I mean? It, it was something in me that was bigger than myself. You know okay. what I mean? Even when uh, the invitation was extended to me and the word was you know, from all of these alphabet boys, you know, they send messages <laughs> right. to uh, try to get me to disown where I was from and my people. And, you know, I told my brother be dead than to disown where I'm from or my people. So it was, it, it was in me uh, uh, to that extent where I was willing to die uh, to stay connected. And, uh, you know, with that being said, you know, all of my moves, uh, have been fearless where they're concerned, you know, because, you know, as a lot of people know, they tried to put a hit on me. You know, they threatened my life. They put a a guy on me that killed, you know, eight people, Schumacher, you know what I mean? His sidekick, Chad Scott, you know, just recently got indicted, uh, 10 indictments for the very thing that I shined a light on him over a decade ago. So, you know, this is like real life situations that are still going on. And that's what I think is one of the great things about the book Respect is that when you're in the book and you're showing these letters from Maxine Waters 
and you're showing the different things of the indictments and everything, it's it goes from you telling a story to you documenting facts and things yeah. that really happened. So what gave you the idea to want to actually put the those documents in the book as part of the text? Uh, because I believe more is caught than taught. You know what I mean? A, a person will believe and go by what they see more so than what they hear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I had it, you know, so why not <laughs> show it to them? Right. Okay. And then throughout the book also you talk about your different interactions with a lot of the biggest executives in particular. And, um, you know, obviously the thing that you were going to be doing with Suge and, and the Murder, Inc. guys didn't work out. But throughout the years, you had talked about your different interactions with Suge and some of your impressions about him and, and what happened to him and, and different types of things. So what, when you were first meeting Suge, interacting with him, like what did you notice about him that maybe he's playing a part to what's happening to him now? Well, you know, he was campaigning. You know what I mean? He was campaigning with foolishness back then. Hmm. And ultimately, you know what I mean? He got elected with foolishness. Hmm. And, you know, uh, my heart go out to the brother right now. You know what I mean? Because I wouldn't wish that on, on you know, my worst enemy. You know, basically, he just about got a life sentence. Right. You know, whether he accepted, you know, voluntarily or not. You know, that's, that's what's before him right now. But that's the, uh, that's the reality of uh, campaigning with foolishness, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's, that's the end results of those kind of situations. So it's important for uh, the, the future, the present, you know, it's hard to talk to the past, but to understand that and learn from the mistakes of, uh, you know, campaigning with the wrong purpose, you know. Mm -hmm. at least know the reward that go along with with those campaigns. And something you also do throughout the book is talk a lot about like the street codes and how the streets work. And you talk about in the book how, you know, you went to the hypnotized video shoot with Biggie and Puffy. And I thought that was very powerful because your sense of what was going on did not match what Biggie was feeling. And he was looking at it as strictly business and not paying attention to what was going on in L.A. So what made what do you think was the difference of why you were able to pick up on things? And then obviously he was killed in Los Angeles later. Yeah. But what made your perception of things different from what you noticed his perception was? Well, you know, there's a thing that uh, my street depth. You know, meaning that uh, I'm a little more seasoned where the streets are concerned. And, you know, Puff, Biggie is uh, somewhat surface deep to a certain extent. You know what I mean? You got, to, you got to call it like it is, you know, because I saw that a mile away. You know what I mean? It was important for me to explain to them the possibilities and the things that I was hearing, you know, but just automatically, you know, it would register to me, you know, after what had happened with Pac and uh, assumptions of 
them having something to do with it or the hate that was in the air uh, for them, period, even before that took place, this wasn't a place to be. You know what I mean? And you have to uh, really have uh, experience where the streets are concerned to even begin to understand, you know, what can happen in them. And, and I think if they would have really been a little more depth where the streets were concerned, they wouldn't have been here like that. Right. Yeah. So it was the naiveness, you know, where streets are concerned. Uh, it can cost you your very life. Well, you, you put in the book, too, like, if the streets don't want you, don't go. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, different people see in different ways. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the lessons that, you know, I think people can take from the book and understand. And that's why I think it's so powerful is how you, you know, start off with talking about your life. And then you can, if people really read the whole book and understand what you're talking about, the lessons you learned in your life apply to the music industry, but they apply still to life in general yeah. on so many different levels. So mm. now, um, and you also had the great uh, story about the executive from Virgin canceling his meeting with the Rolling Stones to yeah. come meet with you in Houston. Mm -hmm. And that really, it didn't surprise me. Uh, I was surprised to learn the story, but it didn't surprise me because he's looking at it, I think, from everything I know about you, the way you would. It was like a business opportunity. They yeah. got the Rolling Stones. Whether yeah. he goes to see them or not is irrelevant, but he didn't right. have rap a lot. Right, right. So, and obviously through New Tribe and a lot of the different things, you know, as discussed in the book, rap a lot was bigger than ever with Scarface's success, the Ghetto Boy's success. So learning from the virgin machine and being part of that after you know the deaf american thing didn't work out leaving priority having the warner brothers deals fall through what did virgin do that you had been waiting for as a businessman your whole career that enabled it to be so successful they broke bread <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but that's even, a good one <laughs> yeah even more important than that you know uh ken berry you know, mm -hmm. which was Bronson. He and Bronson started a version together. Right. The game that he gave me, the wisdom that he gave me of the reason for closing that deal, uh, like enhanced, you know, my ability to do the same on several deals after that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just, you know, like, like one would hear that story and overlook that part of it, you know what I mean? Because I asked him, I wanted to know, man, what? And he, and he explained to me the feeling. He said, you only get this feeling, hmm. you know, just every so often about deals. And when you get that feeling, you close immediately. Hmm. And, you know, after him enlightening me and sharing that with me, I started like tapping into that feeling about certain deals. And, you know, when I got that feeling, I started executing. And every time I executed and was successful, I thought about, you know, wow, man, this man, and I made so much more money by executing the very thing that he uh, said to me that mm -hmm. appeared to not be much. You know, just like I sit here and, you know, with the interview with you, 
you know, I've interviewed with a many of people and nobody like really understood a lot of the things that I wrote, like you understand. You know what I mean? Just, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm articulating that as you are interviewing me. I'm like, wow, this brother really picked up on some things he read about it. He know, you know what I mean? Like I, a lot of people interviewed me, but the depth of the questions that you asking me, I understand what that means. You know what I mean? I understand that you're a little deeper than the average. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Jay. Thank you for that. Um, but as you can tell, I'm a huge fan of obviously hip hop culture and the music, but you, what you've done and accomplished too. And I think that's why it's important that people read this book because, you know, I got into all this because I love the music. Yeah. And then as my um, status in the game changed as a writer and interview and everything, I've connected with people. Obviously, uh, I'm not from the hood. I'm not black. I'm not all these things. But yeah. what I did was I, what can I learn from this? How can right. it make me better? Right. And I noticed in your book, you obviously came up in, you know, bad circumstances, but it seemed like that always mattered to you. Like, this is what's going on in my life, but this is what I want. Yeah. And you, you know, put in the book all your goal sheets. Yeah. And that's something, you know, I haven't been as successful like you have with a lot of them, but that's something that I knew was important. And for you, like, where did you get that idea to have goal sheets, to have like, and on your goal sheets that are in the book, they're not music related exclusively. Right. You know, it's like, I want to buy Pat a, a car. Yeah. I want to buy my grandma a house. Right. I want to, you know, have a million dollars outside of rap a lot. Yeah. Like, where did that come from, given, as you talk about extensively in the book, you didn't go to some prestigious school and you weren't in an environment where your family had 17 businesses. Right. Like, how did you, where did that come from? Well, that came from my heart, you know, uh, originally I had the desire to, to want to do those things because the seeds of love was planted in me, you know, to want to return those things to the very people that, uh, that, you know, I was talking about. But, you know, I also, you know, took it a step further and, you know, I read the book, uh, Think and Grow Rich. Right. And from reading that book, it taught me the importance of writing things down and prioritizing the very things that I desired mm -hmm. and, you know, figuring out a, a, a more clear path of, uh, you know, being able to accomplish and attain those very things. So, you know, it added on to that that already existed in me. And uh, that was beautiful. And then I think one of the other things that I've always admired about you, too, and this was long before I was really writing, but just when I would see on I think it was on Rap City where they and you were talking about how you were making a quarter million dollars off of hay. Hey. And I was just like, what? I didn't know. And then you talk about that also a lot in, in respect of how when you bought your estate and your compound that it came with a business attached to it with yeah. with the hay. So like I think it's important to explain to people like yeah, you can be successful and have all these things going on, but to not close yourself off from opportunities that mm -hmm. are sitting right there. Like right. how, I know you talk about 
coming up and like making the bikes and the and the engines and all these different things but how did you realize or what made you realize that you needed to have more than one hustle more than one way to like and to look for unconventional things like hey right well um you know i always kind of been a, a person that uh <clears throat> i never like no matter you know how much money I may be able to accomplish. I never like to practice wasting it, right. you know, just blowing it and, you know, un, uh, just foolishly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I have to constantly, like, remind myself, don't become that person. Don't practice that habit because, you know, as we all know, when you practice different habits, they can make or break you. So, first of all, you know, with that being understood, I looked for a situation where, you know, my ranch was concerned. I, I watched, I went and uh, looked at several ranches and, you know, I believe in counting the cost mm -hmm. uh, on anything before I just embrace it and jump into it. And, uh, you know, one thing about the ranch that I uh, purchased with the hay business and the black angles uh, business, uh, as well of just you know loving the beauty of the land and everything like that, it was real attractive uh, to me to see a business that helped pay for the overhead where the ranch was concerned. Right. You know what I mean. So I kind of viewed it as okay, this is more of a situation where everything can be on autopilot where the ranch can pay for itself. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean. If not totally close to it, you know it wasn't even. Uh, a situation where I had to make money off the ranch. Of course, that would have been icing on the cake. Right. But, you know, anybody that, you know, that's in the ranch business understand that, you know, that's a business uh, unless you have all of some, you know, crazy devices like that on it. You know, you, it's not a money-making situation. <laughs> right. And yeah. they're very expensive for the overhead. Yeah, exactly. And you were talking about decisions and choices. One of the things... Um, you talk about two things that I think are related. So I was trying to figure out the good way to combine them, but he talked extensively about not drinking, doing drugs or having anything that would take away the power of your own mind. Yeah. And on a somewhat related note, you also talked about how you didn't want your children or didn't allow them to listen to rap. You didn't want rap to raise them. Right. So given the, you know, the music that is out there now and, you know, when we were coming up and stuff, how did you navigate not falling into that lifestyle? And I know, you know, directly and indirectly, a lot of the artists on the label clearly had problems with substance abuse. And you talk about that in the book with Bushwick in particular. Mm -hmm. But how did you navigate that as a businessman, as a person, and still be able to, you know, produce the music and raise your children and kind of keep that set those worlds separate okay oh well let me deal with the first piece uh the drug piece you know all of my life you know i was raised i was raised around drugs mm -hmm. you know just about all of my life uh people tried to you know uh give me drugs to mm -hmm. use you know and uh, i had a lot of fights because i wouldn't you know i was called uh, all kinds of punks and different things because I wouldn't follow 
uh, the leaders on using drugs, you know, whatever they was doing. I, in my mind, even, you know, as an eight-year-old, I'm like, I don't want it. So I never allowed a man to impose his will on me through whatever pressure he was trying to use to make me use that. And when I got older, I understood it even more why I didn't want the drugs in my system to uh, like blur my focus. You know what I mean? I had big things that I wanted to accomplish. And you know, as I learned about the drugs and the different things that was going on, I'm like, whoa, you know, I, I don't never want that, you know, to be a situation to uh, stop me from reaching the goals that I want to reach. Right. And you know, that's what that's what would happen where, you know, drugs and bad habits are concerned because they got a mind of their own when they get in your body. It's a whole different spirit, you know what I mean, of his own. And and if you allow that to be the captain of your ship, then, you know, it'll be just that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it'll lead you down a road that you may not want to go. So with me like really understanding that me really seeing my uncles and all the different relatives and talking to them, you know what I mean, for just trying this particular drug out one time mm -hmm. and how it took over their life for the next 30 or 40 years. You know, they became a slave to that drug for the next 30 years or better. So understanding that and, and observing that, I'm like, you won't get me like that. Right. You know what I mean? I, I got big things I need to do and I'm not going to allow this to stop me from getting to it. Now, the other part of the question where uh, uh, my kids were concerned and, and why I didn't allow uh, hip hop or TV, uh, no outside force to enter my household and become the daddy in my household. Right. Because, you know, I understood as well from being raised you know, without uh, a, a father in my house, I understood the things I got away with, I understood mm -hmm. the things that I had access to, such as, you know, different music and, and rated R situation. I understood what it done to my mind, how it matured me uh, amongst, you know, my normal age. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? When you have access to any and everything, when you, well, when you allow your kids have access to any and everything, then it's gonna escalate, you know, uh, them not being a child. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's gonna take away from their childhood because once you are awakened by these certain things, then, you know, you may not wanna play with a doll no more. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know what I mean? You may not you wanna push a doom buggy. Yeah, it, it's gone. So, you know, I had to, uh, not allow that to, uh, you know, be the boss boss of my house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's important of, you know, having the boundaries. And that's something that throughout respect that you do, I think a, a great job of like having all these boundaries personally, professionally, and, you know, with your relationships and different things. And you explain how that shaped your business mind. So moving when you were getting more into the boxing world, how did you see, did you see like boxing is very similar to the rap game or different? Because 
on the one hand, in the book, you talk about like the Don Kings of the world and how he came at you a couple times. <laughs> and then how you would also felt in a different way, but a similar way, how some of the rap executives have come had come at you. Mm-hmm. So like, how did you, you know, figure that out? Yeah, well, you know, I tell everybody boxing was my first love, mm-hmm. but you know, I didn't know until I got into boxing that, you know, it was just as a cutthroat business as a music game was. And after really analyzing everything, I understood that really I'm dealing with a lot of the same people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's the same uh, uh, playing field with different rules mm-hmm. attached to it. So I was right at home. You know what I mean? I was right at home in the boxing world because I was dealing with a lot of the homies that's from where I'm from, as well as rappers. And then I went on to find out that a lot of the uh, the people that was in high, you know, uh, positions where boxing was concerned was a lot of some of the same uh, principles and whatnot that I had learned about as well. So, you know, I, I hit the ground running, you know, uh, I dealt with, you know, the Bob Arums, the, the Don Kings, you know, these guys was highly seasoned mm-hmm. and they've been that way for years and they had you know, certain things that they, uh, uh, way of doing business for years. But I came on the playing field untamed, you know what I mean, relentless, and, you know, I couldn't be bought, you know. So uh, I made a name for myself mm-hmm. being that way. And I think it's, too, it's interesting throughout Respect, the new book, make sure everybody pick it up if you haven't already. One thing that I thought was interesting is, you know, talking about boxing, the music industry, and then the street stuff with the Larry Hoovers and the Harry O's of the world. So what have you noticed as you look around and you look back and as writing the book or just in your normal reflection, because I know you say you pray and, and you, you know, try to evaluate things. Obviously, all those dudes are just named very different backgrounds. Some are mm-hmm. white, some are black, some came up rich, some came up poor. Like, what is the thread that you've noticed about that caliber of businessman? Like, what is it? Well, you know, all of those guys, you know, that you just named are, are, are brilliant in their own way. You know what I mean? It's uh, when I think about uh, Hoover, you know what I mean? A lot of the. Uh, the other uh, guys that mastered the street avenue of, of the different games that we chose to play. You know, to me, that simply means that we are brilliant people. You know, those guys were brilliant, brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Then I imagine they still brilliant. It's just that the difference is uh, if you try to make a career, you know, out of uh, you know, the things that America say is against the law (laughs) or wrong, then you're going against the universal laws to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can't can't win. So no one, at least I'm gonna advise, no one should try and make a career out of the things that are, are against the law. You know, take that brilliance. If any of those guys would have taken that brilliance and applied it in corporate America, you would see some of the 
the greatest results uh, you could ever observe because they them kind of people. Right. Yeah. And, you know, obviously speaking with Harry O and Larry Hoover in particular, we saw them amass influence, wealth, different things, and just did it, as you said, in a way that people say is illegal in the United States, but that I think the important thing is not to diminish the intelligence and the savvy yeah. and the ways to organize and, and to get things done right. on a big scale. And like you said, if they'd have been running McDonald's instead, yeah, you know, they'd be, you know, revered as, you know, brilliant dudes. Right. No, I agree. I agree. And then um, tied into all of that, what makes now the right time that you wanted to write this book? Um, because of the demand. You know, mm -hmm. the demand, the accomplishments, uh, you know, my whole belief system of, uh, you know, I believe uh, readers are leaders. And, you know, I want to lead by example because I believe more is caught than taught. <laughs> so, therefore, you know, I put it all uh, in the book. And I hope that uh, people could digest it as well as you have. Well, thank you. Yeah. And another thing in the book, too, that I thought was great was how you explain, like, the three things that, you know, you look for, what you look for, for people that you want to get into business with. Yeah. So I'd like for you to explain those three characteristics and how those came to be. Yeah, well, that's a long story. Okay. They, uh, <laughs> they're going to have to uh, read on that one, but you're speaking of the chapter Heart, Loyalty, and Commitment. And those are the ingredients that I built my team around. You know, those are the ingredients that I feel anybody that's trying to build something should surround them, themselves with people with heart, loyalty, and commitment. All right, everybody. Well, thank you, Jay Prince, for coming through. His new book, The Art and Science of Respect, is in stores now worldwide. Make sure you pick it up if you haven't already. It's an amazing read. And thank you for coming through to Unique Access. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me. Appreciate it, man. Right, thank bro. you, thank you. All right, well, thanks for tuning in to Unique Access with Soren Baker. I appreciate your guys' support. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and however you guys checked out this episode of Unique Access with Soren Baker. Also, if you haven't already, please pick up the copies of my two most recent books, The History of Gangster Rap and The Gucci Man Guide to Greatness with Gucci Man. You can find both of those books on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, at the independent bookstore near you. And of course, you could also check them out at your library. And if any of those places don't have them, please request them. And most importantly, thank you so much for listening to Unique Access with Soren Baker, however you listen to us. And please subscribe so we get into your feed. Hit us with that like and hit us with the five stars, 10 stars, 100 stars, whatever's the highest they got on this platform. But we appreciate your guys' support and look forward to you checking us out on the next episode.